Well, welcome back uh, to the Cato Institute's 2015 uh, Surveillance Conference. We're ready to begin our uh, first afternoon panel, uh, which deals with the thorny questions that arise when uh, legal infrastructure uh, built for operation within uh, geographic physical borders has to deal with communications operating on a borderless packet switch global network where uh, the government of the United States may seek uh, information about a user in Russia whose data is being stored on a data center and a server in Ireland. Uh, how does the law adapt to deal with the problems of uh, competing and often conflicting national legal frameworks uh, for governing privacy and the authority of government to seek information as part of investigations, uh, and what is the obligation of companies uh, in dealing with those requests uh, to both fulfill their obligations to uh, comply with lawful orders and to protect their privacy, the privacy of their users. Um, certainly, uh, the recent uh, EU court decision on, on uh, the safe harbor uh, has uh, raised that to uh, new prominence. Uh, and so I'm very pleased that we have to moderate uh, a discussion on this. Uh, my colleague, Patrick Eddington, before there was uh, Edward Snowden, there was Pat Eddington, a former uh, CIA analyst who uh, also uh, became a whistleblower and wrote about his experiences there and has uh, just about a year ago joined us here at Cato to, uh, uh, to work uh, with me in part on, on issues surrounding privacy, national security, and surveillance. I'm pleased to turn it over to Pat Eddington. Julian, thank you very much, and uh, thanks to all of you and to our supporters and sponsors uh, out there uh, watching this and the general public. Um, hopefully, we will be able to keep everybody awake after the big lunch surge there. And, you know, Julian touched on uh, kind of the, the broad issues here. What we want to try to do over the course of the next hour uh, is take a, a real good hard look at an issue that has political, economic, and legal complexities that I'm hoping our panelists will be able to help us uh, work through in a way that a non-lawyer Luddite like myself uh, can actually understand. Um, and to that end, I want to just take a quick moment and introduce the folks. Um, Jen Daskal is with uh, American University's Washington College of Law. She's been there since 2013. She teaches and writes in the fields of criminal law, national security law, and constitutional law. Uh, she spent two years at the Department of Justice from 2009 to 2011 as uh, counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for National Security and served on the Secretary of Defense and Attorney General-led uh, Detention Policy Task Force, which is uh, at least in part where I came to know her when I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, and uh, Oren Kerr, uh, sitting next to her, definitely a nationally recognized scholar. He is over at uh, George Washington University, unless I'm badly mistaken. That's uh, the right George. Yes, okay. All right. Lots to choose from. <laughs> he is also a former uh, Department of Justice uh, employee. He was Special Assistant uh, U.S. Attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia and uh, has got an enormous amount of experience uh, arguing cases uh, before the, the various federal courts, uh, including the, uh, the Fourth and Sixth Circuits, as well as the Third Circuit. Uh, immediately to his right is Chris Hoppensberger, who is policy director at the Business Software Alliance, where he works with BSA members to develop their technology policy positions and articulate those positions to U.S. and international policymakers. And we'll have a lot to talk about with respect to the international business angle here. 
And then finally joining us uh, from Facebook is Matt Peralt, who is the head of their uh, global policy development, where he works to develop the company's position on global public policy issues. He is also an attorney. Uh, he was counsel at the Congressional Oversight Panel, and he has also clerked uh, at the U.S. District Court. So needless to say, these folks, at the end of the day, are going to know a whole lot more about this topic than I necessarily do. Um, and the basic question, I think, as Julian articulated it, is what are the implications of moving data between the United States and elsewhere around the world? You know, 15 years ago, this wasn't quite as much of an issue. Now, with cloud computing and, and all of these other radical technological developments that have occurred in that period of time, it's become much more uh, of a concern. And what we want to try to zero in on in the course of this hour is specifically what are the national security, the privacy, the civil liberties implications, but also the business implications uh, of these most recent developments. And there's, a, there's one court case out there right now that's been percolating along for the last um, couple of years now, and that involves Microsoft. And in December of 2013, Microsoft got a warrant from the Justice Department seeking emails on one of their customers who was engaged in alleged drug trafficking. Uh, Microsoft has thus far refused to comply with that, and they've been claiming that the, since the data was stored on an overseas server, that the warrant was essentially invalid uh, unless it was coming from Irish authorities, which is actually where the data in this case is located. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, Justice Department attorneys beg to differ uh, on that particular one. And to that end, back in August of this year, Warren wrote a very, uh, Warren wrote a very interesting piece in the Washington Post. And I, I just want to quote in full that opening paragraph because it kind of sets the stage for us here. And this is the way that Warren framed it. According to Microsoft's brief, the issue is whether the Stored Communications Act applies to data stored overseas. Microsoft argues that the SCA regulates data and is being impermissibly applied extraterritorially, so the warrant should not be allowed. The United States responds that the SCA applies and the warrant should be enforced because the SCA regulates providers inside the United States. If you accept this framing, which side should win depends on whether the territorial SCA regulates providers, in this uh, case inside the US, or regulates data in this case, outside the US. And then in that piece, you went on to say that you felt like the parties might actually be missing maybe the larger legal issue. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit and, and take us through that? Sure. So uh, the Microsoft case, uh, as, as Pat nicely summarized, is really dealing with a, the question of territoriality that has always been latent in the statute but never really came up. Uh, the statute goes back to 1986, and it's drafted at a time when you just didn't have this problem uh, or issue of extraterritoriality. Extra uh, you know, we're talking about CompuServe, basically, in the 1980s. <laughs> Everything's very local. You, it would be a long-distance phone call, an international phone call at whatever, $2 a minute or so, uh, <laughs> to, to try to draw data from abroad. It just wouldn't happen. Of course, these days, with global networks, uh, a, a big service provider could have servers all over the world and could be moving data back and forth uh, for lots of different reasons. So the question is, what do you do with the data stored overseas, but accessible by Microsoft in the United States? Uh, the parties frame this as being whether the statute applies overseas, thinking, well, the procedure to obtain the information is sort of explained in the statute. Stored Communications Act says you need a warrant in order to compel the contents of communications. Uh, so the parties frame the issue as being, does the statute apply overseas, 
Uh, I argued in this blog post when I you know, finally sort of, okay, I've got to figure out what I think of, of this case and who's right and who's wrong. Um, it, it seemed to me that the statute only says, oh, okay, government, a warrant is needed in order to compel contents. Here, the government has a warrant, so the statute is satisfied. The real question, I think, in the Microsoft case is, does the warrant require Microsoft to comply? Uh, does the warrant require Microsoft to go to its, uh, uh, you know, go from Seattle or wherever it's accessing the, the network and draw the information from overseas? And that really, I think, relates to two different questions. First, what's the authority to compel Microsoft to act? Traditionally, search warrants are about telling the government what the government can do. Uh, and instead, in this case, the government is trying to get Microsoft to do something. That's not so surprising in a third-party network environment that the government would rely on the provider. But traditionally, when the government tries to get a third party to execute a warrant on its behalf, the government gets a separate order under a law called the All Writs Act, which basically says, we already have another order, but we need help from somebody else to come in and execute the order. Uh, here, there's no All Writs Act order that was obtained separately. It's not clear what the warrant itself authorizes or requires Microsoft to do. Does it require them to uh, draw data from in their server you know, that they can access from the U.S., but that's stored outside the U.S.? It really boils down, as I see it, to what is a warrant and what is a warrant mandate. To my mind, the big picture of the Microsoft case is just that Congress didn't think of any of this stuff. Uh, you, you look back at the legislative history of the 1986 Act, and there's a sense of like, wow, there's this new thing called internet, uh, and there's this thing called electronic mail. And if you look at the legislative history, they talk about things like sometimes electronic mail is sent entirely electronically, but a lot of times it's printed out along the way and hand-delivered to the recipient. And you're like, oh, of course, you'd hand-deliver the email. Um, so that's the era in which the statute was drafted, and now we just have such a different world. We're trying to grapple with what to do. I think that's right, if I can jump in. Yeah, please. And, you know, obviously, ECPA is completely outdated at this point. Uh, when we are up on the hill talking about trying to reform ECPA, we show a map of what the internet looked like in 1986 when ECPA was passed, and it didn't even span the United States. It was, it was an incomplete network, and ECPA really is, uh, particularly for the global context, uh, um, is an incomplete law. Uh, as companies, we talk quite a bit about uh, the Microsoft warrant case really being about trust. One of the things in the, in the legislative debate at the time was the need to pass ECPA for this evolving, emerging thing uh, for email uh, was in order to foment trust in the system. Uh, we believe that the way the United States, the Department of Justice, is going after email held overseas on behalf of what we believe is a, an international consumer really undermines that exact type of trust that, that ECPA was trying to, to build in the first place. And I think uh, we talked, too, about how do you translate a warrant in the Internet age? How do you, if you're not going to use the All Writs Act, uh, you know, you, the Department of Justice could not go to Marriott and say to Marriott, we suspect, we know, someone's up to bad things. He's staying in a hotel room of yours in Berlin. Go into the room, open the safe, take pictures of, of what's in the safe and send it back to us any more than they should be able to go and, and force Microsoft to grab materials from an Ireland data center. Matt, did you have something on that? Or? Not specific. Okay, okay. You wanted to... Sure. No, and I think I think that it's worth kind of stepping back and looking at the Microsoft issue and the policy implications that are raised by it. So apart from who wins and who's right on the actual merits of the case, um, as I've talked about and written about previously, 
I think both sides are wrong as a matter of policy. So Microsoft wins. That means data location controls. So the US government can't get access to data if the data happens to be located outside the United States. That's a concern because it's a huge incentive for data localization initiatives. It also just doesn't make sense when you think about the characteristics of data and the way it moves and the speed by which it moves. And it doesn't make normative sense when you think about, for the most part, not in all situations, but for the most part, the data user, the person who has an ownership interest in his or her data, doesn't have a say in where his or her data is located at any given moment. So the idea that the place where the data is has some sort of hold in terms of who gets access to the data doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about both the characteristics of data and who makes the location determinations. On the other side, I, I think there's a real concern about the government's position as well. The government's basically saying, we can compel the production of data anywhere it's located without any limits so long as the provider's based in the United States. Mm -hmm. The United States is not the only government who's saying this. The UK has legislation that's passed that basically says that it can compel any provider that does business in its jurisdiction to turn over data wherever located. And you start worrying about a kind of a race to the bottom and a real conflict between laws that require the compulsion of data and laws that are attempting to regulate data. So the UK says it can get the data. US law says it can't. Companies are put in a really difficult position. And that has, I think, a host of other negative consequences as well. And so what this really leads to, I think, is a, is a, a conclusion that both sides have problems in the Microsoft case, and we really need to have a serious policy discussion, both in the legislative branch and the executive branch and in the public, about what to do. And there's two separate components to that question. One is, where can the United States compel? What, what are the rules for the United States to be able to compel production of data that may be located extraterritorially? And the other set of rules that need to be looked at are, what are the rules for, which, for when foreign governments can get access to data that's either stored within the United States or held by US-based providers. They're two separate questions. To the extent that we have um, symmetrical answers that for, to both of them, I think we're in a better place. But I think the questions need to be looked at separately. If I could follow up. One interesting thing about this um, issue that's different from past surveillance law issues. Uh, in the past, a lot of surveillance law issues boil down to, uh, does the government have enough cause uh, is the standard high enough? So we, you know, there's a lot of objections. Warrantless surveillance, it's critical. The government needs to get a warrant. If only the government could get a warrant. Why didn't the government get a warrant? How many warrants? Here, the government has a warrant, right? So, and, and, and if you look at the privacy protections abroad, they're not higher protections abroad. Some have said that actually the privacy protections, if you go through the Irish authorities, may be lower than the US warrant standard. So we're not talking about sort of you know, the government getting the, the um, uh, you know, the, the enough cause. We're talking about which governments uh, should be the ones in charge. Should, uh, should you, are US judges trustworthy enough to be able to authorize warrants uh, for those who are abroad, either in the eyes of the United States, where most people would say, sure, or in the eyes of those abroad, where they might say, well, no, we don't trust US judges. We want Irish judges, or we want UK judges, or, or whoever might be on the other side. So this is really a sovereignty question more than a limiting the government question. And then you might say, well, wait a minute. Why 
does the U.S. government want to be able to get a warrant? So this is, again, sort of reversing the usual polarities. Here the government is saying, you know, we, we have a warrant. We, we want to be able to get warrants. Why? And, and the reason is they want to be able to compel the information quickly. If uh, a U.S. warrant means they can go to the U.S. company and within a few days get the information, the other paths can be much more time-consuming, much, much less certain. could be a matter of months uh, many months, even maybe a year, to get the data. They might not be able to get it. So, so this is really a sovereignty kind of uh, international relations question more than the usual surveillance law, how much privacy should there be question. If I can just pick up on, on what Jen said, I, I think she's exactly right. I, I think if you, if you look at this, there are outcomes either way uh, based on who wins and who loses in the court case that, that has some negative implications. I think a win here is, and as the, the justices in the Second Circuit, uh, when, they, when they were discussing this in oral argument, a win here is getting Congress to act because Congress really needs to step in and the executive branch needs to step in. And, and we need to start talking about some kind of international framework, international agreement for, for how to address these things. Um, the, the Microsoft, the argument that if, if Microsoft wins, it leads to data localization, I well understand it. I think on the other side, we see if the US government wins and we say to foreign governments that, look, we can, the United States can get your data regardless of wherever it's held, so long as it's held by a US company. What we see is a system where foreign governments, instead of localizing their data, uh, in, instead of data localization, we have data imperialism, where those foreign governments say, you know what? Uh, you just can't use U.S. services, and that's how we keep data out of the hands of the U.S. government, and that's a loss for, for everyone, really. And how much of that trend are you seeing now? I mean, kind of, because I, I think that many of us, when, when um, Snowden did his data dump and, and put all this stuff in play, and these issues began to percolate, one of the issues that, in my view, didn't get nearly enough attention at the beginning of this was what is this ultimately going to do to U.S. business competitiveness, right? And for me, like, the big moment was getting Glenn Greenwald's book um, and opening it up and seeing these photographs of NSA employees allegedly putting electronic implants into Cisco routers, <laughs> boxing them back up, and then sending them on their way. But what we're talking about here ultimately is on a much vaster scale in terms of its potential impact. So, I mean, to the extent that you can and that you're comfortable from a proprietary standpoint, talking about the impacts, Facebook specifically, but BSA and its members more broadly, tell us what you're seeing. Tell, tell us what's happening as essence out there. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to take that one. Happy to answer it in reference um, to this historic day. As many of you guys know, today is Back to the Future Day. Um, <laughs> it's a day that I'm taking Cubs very win. seriously. I, I watched part two on Saturday, um, which was fantastic preparation for this event. So as many of you know, um, in Back to the Future part two, Marnie McFly, our hero, um, journeys into the future um, to this day. That's why it's Back to the Future Day. Um, and he there um, he he considers a plan that is uh, a misguided plan, which is to buy a sports almanac, and then he will travel back into the past. And in the past, he will use that sports almanac to bet on um, athletic events and make a fortune. Um, Doc, because he's an incredibly wise man, persuades him not to do this. They leave it in a trash can, and unfortunately, Biff, who is Marty McFly's nemesis. Um, Biff, this is granddaddy Biff in the future. Um, he takes the almanac, travels back into the past, gives it to his old self in 1955, and his old self then uses it to do exactly what Marty contemplated doing, um, bet on sports events and make, uh, and make a fortune. 
Um, it's highly relevant to today's panel um, because, um, as, as all of you um, Back to the Future enthusiasts know, um, the result of this endeavor is creating an alternate 1985. So in this alternate 1985, Biff Tannen rules the world. Um, he lives in a very large uh, casino. He's married to Marty's mother. He has executed um, Marty's father. It's a terrible world. Um, Back to the Future does provide, um, I, know, I know you believe me, um, it, does, <laughs> it does provide a useful framing for thinking about this because um, I think there is a question at some point in the future, will we look back at a moment and think about when an alternate 1985 could have been avoided? And um, from our perspective, I think there are a variety of elements that would constitute what Facebook might consider a, a problematic and Biff Tannen-like alternate 1985. Um, I think that world would be a world in which there's data localization, so in which that internet is fragmented rather than borderless. Um, it's a world in which the transparency statistics, transparency report statistics that companies like ours and other companies like Microsoft and Google and Yahoo and others are putting out are increasingly on the rise. It's a world where regimes um, around the world are, are exerting their authority to try to get data from companies like ours. So they're doing that extraterritorially. They're overbroad requests. It's a world where they're exerting that authority by threatening our employees. Um, and so if we can see that this is a possibility, this Biff Tannen-like alternate 1985 of the future um, is a possibility, then I think it raises another uh, question that is um, as as, uh, as all, all things in Back to the Future are, it was very wisely raised in Back to the Future Part Two. Um, what is the moment when we could go back into the past and avert this future scenario? So in Back to the Future, Marty goes back to 1955 and steals the sports almanac back from Biff. I think the question here is, um, what is the moment when we would go back in time and we would think, how can we possibly um, avoid this alternate 1985 and what can we do now to avoid it? I think it's arguable, although it others might dispute it, that this might be that moment. And so then the question is, well, what are the things that we can do to avoid um, the alternate 1985 of the future? Um, and I think it really gets back to the, some of the points that, um, that others on the panel have already raised, which is to think about it more from a holistic perspective and to try to encourage a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom. And so I think one of the things that we have experienced is that our inability to say yes in response to government requests in lots of different situations, um, lots of situations that I think everyone in this room might, might agree would be legitimate law enforcement requests, um, and we're blocked from saying yes to those requests um, due to ECPA, that minimizes our ability to say no in cases where we might all agree that we would want to say no. And it also introduces into the system an increasing amount of pressure that results in all the things that might help to create the alternate 1985. So it gives governments the incentive to look for ways to um, apply their laws extraterritorially, for instance. So I think if we're serious about that, if we're serious about avoiding the Biff Tannen world, um, which we should all be, I think we would think very, very seriously now about ways to accelerate that conversation, about ways to address it more uh, systematically, and about ways to introduce human rights standards in a way, um, in a, introduce human rights standards into the law enforcement request process in a way that avoids um, that future world. Can you top Biff Tannen? So I really wish I would have answered that question first because uh, I'm now going to, I'm more than chagrined to have to follow it up by talking about government procurement and, uh, <laughs> and, and talking about contracts. That's back, back to the future three, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so I, th I think the impact has been very real. I think uh, it, it's to, to, to piggyback on the Biff Tannen uh, 
conversation. I think maybe I would pick a, an even earlier date and talk about uh, when Patriot Act was passed because mm -hmm. uh, data localization is not a new conversation. It's not a Microsoft warrant case issue. I think you can, you can take the words Edward Snowden out of a whole lot of stories and substitute in Patriot Act. And these are conversations that we've been having in Brussels for, for years at this point. Um, but And the impact uh, has long been felt by U.S. companies, particularly in Europe, but it's become much more acute uh, post-Snowden. There have been, I'm not betraying anything when I uh, talk about uh, uh, widely reported uh, news stories about U.S. telecom providers who've been iced out of major German uh, uh, procurement opportunities. I know that um, lawyers at many of our member companies are constantly being called in on, on deals that you would never expect uh, the idea of um, uh, government surveillance being interested in you know, certain types of software that I want to talk about because it's not relevant and it would be member specific. But they're, they're having a lot of conversations and, and having to do a lot of uh, customer management um, to, to address some of these things. And, and even uh, simply the storage companies, I, uh, I know that they are having lots of problems. So we, we kind of come back to this whole issue of trust, right? And I guess we've alluded a little bit to some of the legislative uh, potential remedies that are out there. But legislation, it might be able to help rebuild trust, but it can't be the only part of it, right? So are there other things that you think ultimately the United States government, as well as industry, can be doing in order to try to rebuild that trust? And, and kind of secondly, and this is just kind of a personal curiosity question, but for those companies that have you know, footprints overseas, particularly within the EU, these revelations, um, particularly not, not just the initial Snowden revelations, but the stuff that came later about NSA basically trying to recruit folks working either for foreign companies or subsidiaries, maybe some of your members, trying to get access that way. When, when we see those kinds of activities taking place as well, what's that doing to your ability to actually recruit folks, let's say, from the EU to actually work for the operations that you have going on over there? Is that having an impact, or have you seen that kind of an impact? So I don't know that I can speak to that issue, but I, I, I can speak to the trust issue and, and speak to the other things that we can do, because I think the world today is far different than it was on June 4th, uh, 2013, uh, before we all knew the name Edward Snowden. There, are, uh, there have been tremendous changes. Um, you see quite a bit the transparency reports that, that you discussed. That is a new facet uh, here. Companies are much more open about the, the requests they are getting. Uh, from governments. Um, we are working specifically as it relates to, to the European Union, um, you know, the, the Judicial Redress Act. We are working to give Europeans, uh, it is a limited right of access to the U.S. courts, but some amount of access to the U.S. courts because that is an issue that Europeans, uh, that has enraged them for years. Um, we, are, we are doing things across the board. I, I think, um, you know, to, to bring in the safe harbor and, and talk about this, the, the the Court of Justice of the European Union last week, essentially the, the end result is it struck down the vehicle by which the United States, uh, U.S. companies are able to move data from the European Union to the, to the U.S. because U.S. privacy law is not considered adequate according, it does, uh, according to the European standard. Um, so there are lots of things that, are, that have been done post-Snowden to try to salvage that, that uh, 
uh, your, the safe harbor. Uh, the FTC has been working uh, tremendously on, on going after people who are wrongly using the safe harbor. Uh, the, the Commerce Department has stepped up its regulation of, of the safe harbor. There's the Judicial Redress Act. All of these things were sort of written off uh, by the Court of Justice of the European Union. There's been a tremendous amount of work here. Uh, um, USA Freedom Act, changes to FISA, can more be done? Should more be done? I think we would say absolutely, and we are working on those things. Um, but uh, we are working very hard and have continued to work very hard, and I don't think get proper credit for the amount of, of steps that we have taken to try to improve trust. I think that's right. I mean, I think legislative remedies as well as international agreements are probably the principal means that can be taken in order in order to make progress. Um, but I do think we continue to suffer from the misreporting in the initial stories. So I think if you polled people who have followed the story, even, even people who have followed the story, actually, mm -hmm. if you asked, does the NSA have direct access to US company servers, people would say yes, because that was the first line in the story um, in the Washington Post when the Snowden revelations broke. Um, and I think that that has created has helped to fuel some of the lack of trust. And one of the problems is that the US government has not been as clear as it might be about correcting some of the misinformation in those, in those initial reports. Um, and doing that and talking more specifically about, um, about, in, about areas of US surveillance that are um, narrow and targeted, because I think there are many oversight mechanisms that exist, because I think there are many redress opportunities, because there are some. And um, after yesterday's passage of the Judicial Redress Act, it seems like there's reasons to be optimi optimistic there. Um, I think it is important for the US government to speak more clearly about what it is and is not doing. And to be clear, for those who may not um, be following this quite as closely as our, our panelists, uh, the Judicial Redress Act was essentially passed to give Europeans primarily, but I think it applies more broadly than Europeans, the ability essentially to utilize the, the Privacy Act, the US Privacy Act, in order to, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, uh, to get at some of these questions about essentially um, creating an equilibrium, if you will, or, or more level playing field when it comes to making data requests and, and the passage of data and things of that nature of essentially a personally identifying uh, nature. And as we speak, the Senate is now um, in the midst of taking up this uh, Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, um, and this particular ju Judicial Redress Act may be tacked onto that as an amendment. While that is something to potentially cheer, the larger bill itself, I would say, is extremely problematic uh, for those of you who are interested in that. Uh, I've written some on that. You can find it on the Cato website. Um, my colleague Julian, I think, has written on that, and a lot of folks within the community have written on the problems with that particular bill. So I hope that this particular step forward does not become kind of a casualty in the larger process. I would just, I would just add really quickly. I mean, I think the Judicial Redress Act is is a step forward, and it certainly, I think, gives some comfort to Europeans. But it's it's pretty, it's it's a pretty small step forward. It's not, it's it's it provides certain types of ability to bring certain types of claims by design, by by residents, citizens of designated countries. So it doesn't explicitly include Europeans, but the assumption is that it would. Um, and there's national security exceptions and a whole host of other exceptions. So it's a fairly limited step forward. So I certainly, I think it's a positive step forward, but I certainly wouldn't call it a panacea by any extent. And, and, and to be clear, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it's up to the Department of Justice to, dis to make those designations, right? So they are they are the ones who are, in essence, responsible for deciding. I, I believe it's DOJ in conjunction with, with um, 
I, state, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't recall, but it's, it's uh, heads of agent, it's DOJ in conjunction with, yeah. um, probably, yeah. presumably state, but I'm not, I don't want to say I, for sure. I, that's right. I mean, the, the Judicial Redress Act is, you know, we can talk about what should be done and what could be done, and then there's a matter of what can be done, and I think the Judicial Redress Act is something that the, the Justice Department, uh, the Executive Branch has signed off on, uh, the Commerce Department, uh, um, others, like there have been a lot of, of voices in the formulation and creation of this legislation. Um, uh, Congressman Simpson-Brenner, who initially introduced it in the House, uh, was actually in Brussels a couple of weeks ago and received an award for his work on the Judicial Redress Act. So I think, you know, it, very clearly this is something that the Europeans want. Um, even pre-passage and adoption, they are they are lauding him uh, just for his work here. And, and so it's it's clearly part of the puzzle. It could more be done. I think the answer is absolutely. You know, this morning, um, David Medine, the chairman of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, kind of took a, I guess, a gentle shot, essentially, uh, at the EU Court of Justice uh, in their ruling and essentially implied that they may not have had all the facts. Um, do you think he's right? I mean, do, do you think they're, do you think some of the problems we've already discussed about transparency and, and the failure to kind of be clear about what is and is not happening, do you think that might have contributed in this particular case with respect to the, to the Court of Justice decision? So, I'm don't really like to necessarily criticize uh, courts, particularly when they hold the, the fate of some of my company's um, <laughs> business models in their hands. But I, I do think based on a, a reading of, of the, the, the opinion, a, a closer reading on their part of the PCLOB report would have been beneficial. Helpful. Yeah. I want to go back to this issue of the, of the Fourth Amendment and where the Fourth Amendment ties in here, because the Microsoft case, unless I'm badly mistaken, actually involves a foreign national. Um, and here, I think the other concern is the data that, that I have, let's say, that happens to be residing on somebody else's U.S. company server overseas, my rights as a U.S. citizen, at least ostensibly, attach with me when I go overseas, when I physically go overseas, as it pertains to my relationship with my own government, right? Shouldn't that be the case with my data as well, regardless of whether it's residing on a server in the United States or a server in the EU? Should that matter? As far as, far as my ability to maintain the integrity of that data and the privacy of that data and all the rest of that, should that matter? So, so I think, I mean, I, I think that the, so first, in the Microsoft case, the, the government, no, nobody specified whether it's a foreign national or U.S. citizen, okay. so we don't know. Okay. Um, but if you take the government's position in the Microsoft case, they are, as I think Oren said, they're operating with the assumption that the Fourth Amendment applies. They're, they're getting a warrant in order to get the data, reg regardless of the fact that it's overseas. So from the government's perspective, your data is protected if it's owned by a U.S. corporation wherever it's located because the government's proceeding by, by a warrant. And I think, um, I mean, I think that leads back to what I was trying to suggest before, is that we need to have, and, ho and we, hopefully Congress will engage on this discussion about where the United States can compel production of data. There is legislation pending in Congress called the LEADS Act that um, starts to address the question. They answer it by basically saying that the United States can compel the production of data that's located within the territory of the United States, as well as the production of data of US citizens and legal permanent residents that are outside the United States pursuant to a warrant based on probable cause under the assumption that the Fourth Amendment applies. 
Um, I actually, Oren's written about this a little bit as well, and I actually prefer his approach, which focuses <coughs> on the person rather than the location of the data for a whole host of reasons. So under, Oren, you can correct me, but under the approach that I think you've put forward, that the United States would be able to compel the production of US citizens' data and legal permanent residence data wherever located and take out the data location from the equation. And I think that has a, that is preferable for a whole host of reasons, which we can talk about if we have time. When I checked on the status of the LEADS Act, uh, which I believe <coughs> is offered by Representative Tom Marino of Pennsylvania, I only saw one co-sponsor for the legislation. So. It's, uh, it's over 100 in the House. Is it I over 100 in the House? And okay. I believe 20-some in the Senate. And, and uh, so Senator Hatch uh, was the lead sponsor in the Senate. And yeah, it does take a, um, at, at this time, it takes a, uh, a local, uh, a where the data is located approach. I think that is what Senator Hatch, his first idea was. I think he, Senator Hatch is, is open to other ideas, be it based on the, on the uh, citizenship of the, the citizen. Um, we are driving uh, this legislation. We support it strongly. Our members are very supportive of this legislation because we believe there needs to be some kind of solution. I don't think we are set on any particular solution and are open to ideas, including yours. Uh, uh, each of the different models creates a, a host of, of interesting and confusing uh, problems, but that is why we need, um, you know, we need governments to be working together uh, in addition to Congress stepping up and just talk about some of these things. And this is one issue where I think there's relative cause for optimism that there will be legislation passed, whatever the Second Circuit does, in part because the Second Circuit, encountering the current version of the statute, it had no idea about any of these issues, kind of has to pick one or the other, right? They can't make a nuanced call about the citizenship of the person or what to do in various scenarios if there's a mutual legal assistance treaty or not a mutual legal assistance treaty or half the data is in one jurisdiction, half the data is in another jurisdiction. Uh, there are lots of factual variations uh, and uh, the Second Circuit really can't use the existing materials to craft a, a, a decent enough answer here. I completely agree with Jennifer that sort of either of these options that are being litigated are bad from a policy standpoint. Uh, the interesting aspect of this is that uh, both sides to the litigation happen to be sides that have influence on the Hill. Uh, so usually, you know, it's, if, if it's a criminal case, you've got the government against, uh, you know, an individual. The individual is not going to be able to do this. Uh, but here you've got you know, major service providers who are, have a lot of influence on the Hill, the Justice Department that has a lot of influence. And, and my sense is that there's actually, they each have a, a somewhat separate set of concerns. So the, the U.S. Justice Department is primarily, not entirely, but primarily concerned with uh, U.S. providers saying, hey, let's put the data overseas of our U.S. citizens to keep the government away. They don't want that to happen. Uh, and then uh, the foreign, uh, the, the, the providers are prim primarily concerned with non-U.S. persons with their data abroad that the government might want to access and, and how that is encountered in, in other countries. There's a lot of room for compromise in those situations. So I'm actually relatively optimistic that uh, however the Second Circuit rules, it will set up legislation and then we'll, we'll end up with some compromise legislation that gives both sides most of what they want. But Orrin, is it your view that we won't get any actual action on the Hill until the Second Circuit ruling comes down? Do you think it's going to take that spur, in essence, to kind of move the process along? I, I think uh, it'll take that spur, and I think the Second Circuit knows that. They said, Judge Lynch said, it sounds like, sounds like Congress needs to act here. I think the opinion will say, 
this statute cannot be workable. It demands some sort of a legislative response. It's, it's very much going to be kind of a, uh, this is just a prediction based on, in part based on how the oral argument went, in part based on Judge Lynch being on the panel who has done this before uh, in the Section 215 uh, case. And he also sort of had Congress in mind. I think it's going to be a, written as a, a legislation prompting sort of opinion. So I think that'll be the spark that gets, gets people. And I don't think this is going to be a, an opinion that sits in the Second Circuit for months and months and months. I think we will probably have an answer sooner rather than later. Further thoughts on that question? I think that's right. I, um, the, I, I'm always wary of predicting the pace of Congress, given that we've been at the, at the heart of uh, the Leeds Act and, and these things is core ECPA reform. Uh, that is making sure that the government gets a warrant anytime they want to get the access of your email content. That's been kicking around for um, you know generations in Hill terms, uh, and and. So I, I think the Leads Act will require uh, some sort of push. I, I think some of the arguments in the Second Circuit, you know, they make it clear how, how troubling uh, the government's approach in particular is. And one of the government's arguments is that the contents of this user's uh, email, uh, what is in the email is a business record of Microsoft's. And I don't think Microsoft or any other company would really ever take the position that the content of what you put into their filing drawers is their information. Uh, one of the other, uh, you know, if you take this out, if you take the government's argument out to, to its logical extreme, that a U.S. company can 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 go and get data wherever they have it in the world and give it back to the U.S. government, that production is the only thing that matters. Uh, you know, by by that rule, the Chinese government can can come to Chinese companies here in the United States and demand data be turned over to the Chinese government uh, in China. Uh, that that is not a violation of U.S. law. I think there's some real problems with with how the case was argued. So, in essence, this could have implications for journalists. It could have implications for human rights activists, and so on and so forth. Yep, those kind of those cases were exactly what was uh, described in the in the oral arguments. We're going to have to turn to audience Q&A um, within just the next few minutes. Uh, but I want to ask a question, and I, I hope that we don't actually get to this point. But if we have the kind of meltdown um, that we've been, I think, kind of skirting around here, if this balkanization were to, were to actually take place, what does that do for American business? What, what does that mean for our competitiveness? What does it mean for jobs? I, I think it has huge implications. We've been talking about data localization, the splinter net, you know, any uh, variety of terms for a long time. Um, and we see huge implications. One, it undermines the very nature of the internet and cloud computing, all the economic benefits uh, that go along with it. Uh, it Ultimately, it harms the users because it's going to cut people off from services, uh, those services that they can access. The prices are going to go up. Um, but you know, you look at, at uh, U.S. tech companies. I think the, the figure is around 60% of their income is generated overseas. Um, that has big implications for the U.S. economy. Um, Orrin mentioned. Uh, you know, the influence on the Hill, and a lot of times ECPA is considered a judiciary issue and law enforcement, those are the folks who go and talk about it. Um, the, the Commerce Departments care about this quite a bit too. Um, they're, they're looking closely and, and they're watching as well. Yeah, I think implications for competitiveness um, are obviously significant, but just as you said, I think the, the more significant implications are for the people who use these services. So um, I think 
The last statistic I saw about our user base is more than 80% of our users are outside the US. I think it's probably actually higher now. Um, and if you think about what a social network is, it is basically this, yeah. right? So our data storage model is not this, it's this. Um, and so the free flow of information across borders is important to us as a business, but it's also incredibly central to how people want to use a social network and our ability to continue innovating in a way that's responsive to consumer demands. Yeah. And on that cheerful note, I think we can turn to audience Q&A now. Bear with us a second while my colleagues come around with the microphones. And please do bear in mind the ground rules. Um, state your name, your affiliation, and do be brief because we want to try to work in as many folks as we can. Right down in front here first. Thank you. Victoria Feinberg, DOD retiree. The promise of the cloud is to provide quick movement of data and data redundancy. What can stop Microsoft to have a copy of the data in Ireland and another copy in the United States? And uh, similar question, how do proposed laws address the fact that the copy of the same data can be available in several countries, including the United States? So I think those are good questions, and uh, there are a variety of different models. Um, you know, some companies store data in one particular location uh, because that is exactly what a customer demands. Uh, there are rules around the world where a country, you know, a banking regulator will say you have to store your data within uh, these geographic limits. Uh, there are other com companies that shard their data, and you know, I'm I'm not. A computer engineer, um, but my understanding of that, this is that that means data could be anywhere and parts of it could be in any one place and that the only place it really comes together is with the user. Uh, so I think all of these things are need to be addressed. Um, if you, you know, we talked about how Congress in 1986 sounded when they were uh, discussing um, the internet and what email was. I'd love to hear them today discuss data sharding and, and, <laughs> and uh, computer engineering. But I think I think that question also points to the problems that with making data location the determinant of jurisdiction and the advantages of looking to something else like person location or person location coupled with something like citizenship or permanent residency. So there are huge problems for precisely the your question raised precisely the problems with. With, turn, with making data location be the determinant of the rules that apply. I also think there's a difference between asking questions of, of could versus questions of should, right? So I think it would be very hard for us to go from here to here, but ostensibly, I mean, we have smart people, smart engineers who might be able to do that and might be able to figure out a sensible way to do it. I, I think it's unlikely, but maybe it's conceivable. Certainly other companies could. But do we really want to optimize the use of technology services to comply with country-specific regulation? Or do we want to optimize in terms of delivering products that are really innovative and also provide really strong protections for our users? I think that it's I think that the answer, obviously, as I set it up, is, is, is obvious. But I think that there is a real risk of asking questions of could as opposed to questions of should and focusing on optimizing for the wrong thing. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. My name is Li Yang. I really have two very important questions. And they really spread not just NSA or CIA, but I think 
totally proper DOJ and FBI should have an important uh, responsibility to solve all this uh, surveillance. For one thing is uh, we know it's a surveillance. If FBI know, and then they should be able to identify who is hacking or who is doing unjust manipulation and obstruction, so they should be able to prosecute them. And on the other hand, if FBI involved, DOJ should be able to prosecute FBI too. So for all this, and now we are talking about borderless, and if we say immigrants, or foreign, in a sense, uh, foreign origins, then if they have property from the overseas, but because of uh, procedure's sake, they need authorization of the counselor in the United States. But people are harassed and threatened. Say, if you go to the embassy to get uh, authorization, then you'll be dead. So what's going on in the United States and who has a responsibility, whether the White House or Congress or DOJ should be able to resolve this problem so we will be able to say, guarantee the people's rights of their lives and their properties. Okay, thank you. I, I think that, that some of the issues that you're touching on um, really kind of go to fundamental oversight issues with respect to how Congress actually operates and how our government should actually operate in a broader context. Um, and I, I certainly understand the concern, and I share it, with respect to how uh, particular governments persecute dissidents and attempt to interfere with the free flow of information and all the rest of that. I, I think that, from my perspective, you're asking a very broad question that I'm not sure that any of us really here on the panel can complete. Uh, that they can, they can completely address, but if there's anybody that wants to try to take a quick stab at it. I, I, the question I, I heard was what's going on, which seems like exactly the right question to ask. Yeah. I think yeah, so, so I guess my thoughts are, as we've, as we've discussed, I think there's a need for coherence in the system, and coherence comes from uh, legislative action, from government working in a, in a sensible way with its partners overseas, um, as well as clarification from U.S. agencies about what they are doing and what they're not doing. And I, I will say that I have deep concerns about some of the trends that I've seen in the Department of Justice with respect to these prosecution of cases against alleged ISIS militants here in the United States. Um, there is a case to be made, and Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept is among the folks who've made the case, that in a number of these circumstances, you may be looking at entrapment or de facto entrapment. Now, I'm not saying that DOJ has done that in every single case, right? But I do think that that is a concern that I have. The other concern I have that I've seen um, are some statements that have come out of DOJ talking about how if you retweet something from ISIS, that may be sufficient ultimately to bring you essentially under a surveillance umbrella or may wind up um, getting you some additional scrutiny from the government. I do think we have to be very, very concerned about those kinds of issues too, and I'm, I'm sure that many of these folks will be raising those issues as well. Did I see, yeah, right back there in the back, the gentleman with the glasses? I think we're getting. 
Again, uh, your name and affiliation, please. My name's Olivier Lewis. I'm a PhD student. Um, I was wondering whether you could give a little bit more detail on law enforcement cooperation with EU countries, for example, uh, because you mentioned creating an international regime and mutual legal assistance was mentioned. So why isn't it possible just for the FBI, Department of Justice, to cooperate with their peers in Ireland and say, hey, we need this evidence. Can you get a warrant in your country or however it works in Ireland and give it to us? Is that possible today? It could be possible in the future. Who's, no. who's most eager to jump? <laughs> you can do it. Go ahead. I mean, I, it, the answer is it's possible, and that's exactly what Microsoft is saying should happen in its case. It's also time consuming. So um, I don't know exactly what the times are in Ireland to process those kinds of requests, but in the United States, it takes an average of 10 months, according to President's Review Group that, that issued a big report last year. So, so obviously, I mean, there's, the government does not want to wait 10 months, generally speaking, in, certain, in most investigations in order to get a piece of, of data. And so you certainly understand why, for example, the UK is frustrated when it wants data about a citizen that's present in the United States, but that data happens to be located in the United States. And our laws say, ECPA says, you have to go through the Department of Justice and go through this MLAT process. And this MLAT process is going to take an average of 10 months, particularly if you're talking about some non-particularly high-profile crime that might not be of high importance to the United States, but to the, to the local prosecutors in the UK, it might be not something that they want to sit on for 10 months until they get this piece of information. The, the problem of cooperation is one that is longstanding. This is not a new issue. Um, I was at the Justice Department. I left in 2001, and in the late 1990s, this was one of the major issues that led to the Council of Europe Cybercrime Convention to try to get you know, different countries to adapt similar laws. Uh, in many contexts, the jurisdiction of of the home country has been expanded in order to allow the home country to open up its own investigation. So, you know, French authorities will come to the USA, we've got a threat case or a hostage taking case. The US authorities will say, well, we have jurisdiction over this crime too because the threat or communication was sent through a US server. So there's US jurisdiction. We'll open a domestic investigation and get a search warrant tomorrow. Uh, uh, in order to get the information back to the French authorities. It's international assistance through a domestic investigation. That's another option. The, the tricky part with uh, in, international cooperation through MLATs is that, if you think about it, it's, it's usually going to be a case where the other country does not have enough interest to open a domestic investigation, uh, and yet is helping because they've created these treaties which have assistance, and yet it's not that high a priority because it's not actually their case. You involve the State Department, you involve you know, lots of bureaucrats, and things slow down. So, so uh, you know, it's just a really slow process through MLATs. <laughs> Domestic investigations are quick, but require uh, you know, a, a, the, the other country to say, wow, we really need to act quickly. And that will be the case in, say, a hostage-taking case or a kidnapping case, but not necessarily in a fraud case. Yeah, I, I think you can look at the Charlie Hebdo case and um, Microsoft's uh, general counsel, Brad Smith, has talked about this. Um, Microsoft got a request from the French authorities at 5 in the morning, Redmond time, and within 45 minutes they had data going back uh, to French authorities uh, regarding the, 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 um, the shooters in the Charlie Hebdo case. It can work, it can work quickly. The problem with the MLAT system uh, is one both of, of form, uh, it is a system I think probably still built on fax machines and 
maybe wax seals, um, uh, and, 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 and also function. That is, who, who exactly is in charge of taking this international request and making it a US priority? Uh, one of the elements of the LEADS Act is uh, additional funding and, and reform of the MLAP process, uh, creating a dedicated staff of people who are responsible for those things, uh, creating an online uh, email-based system where you can go in and you can look at your request and, and see where it is in the queue and, and hopefully move things more quickly. I think we have time for one more. All the way in the back. Um, Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. I have a question that's what you're talking about, but it's kind of in reverse. The server for Iran is in Columbus, Ohio. It was at an AEI conference where they were actually showing us this and how it's expanded. And I had a hack, and I actually reported it to the Department of Justice and the FBI, and it was believed to be from Iran. So I'm like, well, if the server's in America, why can't you get them? And they've been telling me that they cannot um, basically pursue a, an attack if it's foreign because it's hard to, um, you know, get people to accept responsibility, get the proof, get the warrants. But when the actual server is in America, so it's a country where that it, it's not just going outside the country; it's staying within the country. But another country is responsible. And has that issue ever come up where countries have their servers in another country? So then it's not really crossing borders because it's staying within the border, except probably it goes back to Iran. So if you can answer that, that would be great. Yeah, so, so this is the, the problem. You know, the, the question implicated the, the problem of what about data that the US is trying to collect that's overseas? How hard is it for them to collect that data? Um, and that's why, for example, in the Microsoft case, you know, they want to get the warrant authority because the options, if they can't get the U.S. warrant, are difficult. So they can certainly get probable cause, get a U.S. warrant to seize a U.S. server. Uh, they may just have difficulty getting the probable cause to say that the attack is coming from that location or there's information relevant uh, uh, to that case in the US. So it's hard to comment on any one particular case, but uh, jurisdiction makes it really tricky when the US, you know, any one government can't readily collect evidence from overseas. It may be that the server's in the US, but the information you know, has been routed around the world, making a lot of difficult evidence collection problems for US authorities, even if the end server's in the US. So I think what we have learned today is that the answers to most of our problems lie with Marty McFly. <laughs> Let's give it up for our panel. Thank you all very much.